Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 207 recorded live July 24th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the west side of Michigan, where I would say we had a little bit of a chilly week last week. Not really July-like weather. And joining me this week, I'd like to welcome Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing much better than I was a week or so ago. I was fighting an ear infection a couple weeks ago. And man, that's no fun when you want to dive. No, I, I hear you there. In fact, I've probably got to go and book something here. I've got wax buildup in my left ear. Crap. Oh. Don't get that excited about can you, wax can you hear? Can you hear me? Now you can hear me. What the heck is going on here? No. Yeah, I, heard you the whole, I heard you the whole time. One, two. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong line. Never mind. Yeah, we'll edit that out somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Not only I got wax buildup, I must have crud on my glasses. I was looking at the, uh, see, the, the top line on my recording studio is me, and the bottom line is Jim today. And when I was talking, the gym line wasn't moving, and it had me thrown off. I don't know why. See what happens when you're off for a few weeks? We got to get back to it. Yeah, we'll get back to it. So apologize, everybody, for last week, but that was a long-needed and well-deserved vacation, if I have to say so myself. Got to go camping into the woods, and we'll talk about that when we get to the dive section of the show. But before that, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Oh, and before we get going, Mac was planning on being here and then he got called out for a dive which i guess we can give him a pass on that as long as he's he's underwater oh, he's got to tell us about it when he does come back i'm sure he will so that would probably only makes dive 20 since the last time i've gotten in the water so in the news we have a miami sequarium fined seven thousand dollars for letting trainers work with lolita unprotected don't want to fool with Lolita if you're on not protected. I'm going to say that neoprene should be uh, protection. Oh, oh, wait, maybe not. Animal activists are claiming a victory after the OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, in the U.S. issued a hefty fine for letting trainers work Lolita at the Orca without proper safety precautions. In 2010, SeaWorld trainer Dan uh, Brankow died while she was swimming in the pool with Orca. Since the incident, OSHA has been required that there either be a physical barrier or a safe amount of distance between orcas and trainers during performances. Animal Legal Defense Fund caught trainers breaking those requirements on video, and OSHA has responded by fining this aquarium $7,000 for what they consider to be a serious issue. We celebrate OSHA's swift enforcement against this dangerous facility, said Stephen Wells, Executive Director for Animal Legal Defense Fund. The Miami Seaquarium is risking trainers' lives to exploit Lolita, a wild-captured orca, for huge revenue. The corporation continues to disregard worker safety and animal welfare laws as long as it brings in big profits. The Seaquarium was fined for other violations. OSHA found that some of the employees who were scuba diving were not properly trained in CPR and first aid did not have proper reserve cylinder oxygen on them, nor were the times the divers properly logged. The complaint and fine is just the latest battle between the Seaquarium and the animal activists. 
Lolita has been in captivity since 1970 and lives in what is currently the smallest orca tank in North America. In 2005, her original family, a Puget Sound L-pod, was protected under the Endangered Species Act. Activists hope to have the protective status applied to Lolita as well as the ultimate hope of returning her to a seaside sanctuary in Puget Sound, Washington. So the, the scuba part seems like they also got into a little bit of trouble there. Uh, and you got to remember that OSHA has a little bit different requirements than a regular diver. So uh, looks like CPR and first aid is a requirement for their divers. And an oxygen cylinder on them, a reserve cylinder. So it must be OSHA requires a secondary cylinder, even in a pool. Don't know. Yeah, because I'm trying to I think. Don't, no, I I'm, don't. I looked at some OSHA dive requirements a while back because I was trying to determine if they applied to firefighters doing rescue diving but i don't recall them requiring a backup cylinder i think it had to do with depth but that's what i would think now maybe this tank they're in yeah. has well it wouldn't yeah. just be the depth now the tank may the be tank. deep enough maybe well, deep enough in the tank that it would require well it have to be just be like if we go into lake michigan and it's 160 feet even though you're not going to go down would you have to have a reserve is it based uh, on the depth of the water or the the planned operational depth of the dive? That's a good question. Yeah, maybe that's something we'll have to look up. There's some OSHA questions. We have a sixth graders lionfish discovery blows ecologists out of the water. Uh, this is a they're talking about the Caribbean lionfish. A 12 year old whose name was Lauren Arrington asked a different question. She said, "Could lionfish travel up rivers and wreak havoc on freshwater environments?" Arrington, now 13. Uh, scientists were doing plenty of tests on them, but they just always assumed they were in the ocean. So I was like, well, hey, guys, what about the river? Living in Juniper, Florida, Arrington had previously spotted lionfish while snorkeling and fishing. and knew immediately she wanted to study them for a sixth-grade science fair project. She captured six lionfish in the southern Indian River Lagoon, placed them in tanks, with one as a control and five as experimental fish to test resilience to fresh water, Arrington first introduced salt water at a salinity of 25 parts per thousand, then in order to lower the salinity in her experiments, tanks by five parts per thousand each day. She introduced fresh water with a salinity of less than one part per thousand. After eight days, the fish were thriving in nearly fresh water salinity of six parts per thousand. The rules of the science fair disqualified participants whose subjects died during experimentation. So to avoid the risk of killing the lionfish, she stopped diluting the water. Still, it proved that lionfish survived in low salinity water, alerting scientists to be wary of the preserved fish in freshwater areas. Pervasive fish. Following the success of the project, Craig Lehman, a college professor at the University of North Carolina, confirmed her, farting, her findings acknowledging her in a peer-reviewed scientific journal in the Environmental Biology of Fishes. Is that proper English, Environmental Biology of Fishes? I thought plural fishes was fish. Maybe that's because it's referring to different fish species. But anyway, yeah, This. so does that mean we're going to have lionfish in Great Lakes eventually? Uh, I sure hope not. You know, I wonder if the Asian carp would attack the lionfish. <laughs> yeah. Which is worse, lionfish or Asian carp? I think lionfish are honestly would starve up here. Of course, I don't know. They they do vacuum up the fry, mm. but I do, I think I don't know. I really don't want either of them actually. If I had a choice, yeah, I'd prefer w- to. Keep would you them. rather? So uh, bring the muskies back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's an interesting. And I'm my thought is that this was not a long term study. She did. She's just proving that they could venture into freshwater. Yeah, and they may not prefer it. 
but uh, hopefully somebody does a little bit more study and, and find out. Seems like they get fresh yeah. water. They would be in fresh water in other areas already. Yeah, well, it may be the uh, their f- food sources. You know, they may not have found food sources up to fresh water that they really like. But if their food source gets sparse enough, they'll venture looking for more. Guy like me late at night. Deadly coral disease. You're just full of good news today, yeah, I, aren't I am. you? Just, just like uh, upbeat, you know, all this. So you go on vacation so you can come back to all this. Dredging increases the prevalence of disease in nearby coral reefs. This is a study. Uh, it was done in the was it Australia near the Great Barrier Reef. At dredge sites, we found more than twice as much coral disease as in our control sites. This according to... Uh, lead author Joe Pollack, a postdoctoral candidate at the ARC Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University and the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Wow. Coral requires both light and food to survive, and unfortunately, dredging impacts corals on two fronts. Increased turbidity means less light for photosynthesis, while increased levels of sediment falling in the coral can interfere their ability to feed. Corals shrug off the sediment by shedding mucous membrane, but the extra investment in energy may lead to chronic stress, which may increase their susceptibility to disease. They said about 40% of the world's coral oceans are near large urban areas and coastlines. Let's see, you said you lost audio for a second. Let me... Yeah, you lost audio for a little while, but it's back. Skype dropped me. Well, it didn't really drop me. Okay, yeah, because I'm looking and it looks like I'm still recording. Uh, Yep. All right, hang on. I got to answer the call and talk to my wife for a minute. Uh, you were yeah. talking about the coral disease near the yep. dredging sites. Yeah, they said it adds data that we need to look as far as managing how dredge sites are planned and how dredging conducted in those areas. Uh, let's see. They said white syndrome, a common group of coral diseases, destroy coral tissues and exposes their white bones. The disease can linger, causing chronic damage even after dredging is found. It is disastrous because it seems to go through coral tissue very fast. Once you see it, it's already too late. Well, you know, this this just kind of makes sense. Yeah. And anytime you put any species under stress, you know, people included, you, you, something else can take advantage of it. So you you reduce your resistance to all sorts of problems, and things like this can happen. Yeah, let's, let's go dredge and, you know, not expect anything to happen around the dredging area. Yeah. So it would be it. What they need to do is determine, is there a safe amount of dredging, or are they trying to say that there shouldn't be any dredging at all under any circumstances? Well, because the question is, why are they doing the dredging? Well, and the, and they got to move something for some reason. Yeah, and in this particular case, it was a, a th- over 300 days of dredging, and they were trying to get a, it's called the Gordon Project, a natural gas project aimed at developing gas fields off the coast of Western Australia. Well, they said, 300 oh, days of dredging. Yeah. You know, that's almost a year. Yeah. Well, and you could see something similar in your yard. Go take a, you know, a floor mat or something and throw it on your grass. And, or, and, and like every couple hours, take it off for about 10 minutes and then put it back on. Yeah, it might be enough to keep the grass from completely dying, but it's not going to be happy. Yeah, and, and the water, it's probably doing better than it would on land because you've got a little bit of translucent light that may be making it down there, but you're, you're essentially starving them if you reduce their ability to get to sunlight. And also if you have an issue where they're, uh, you know, they've also got material that's building up onto them that they have to try and slough off, that's going to be some challenges. And then here we go. I'm on my trend for upbeat news. Foreign dive operators add nothing to the Bahamas economy. Uh, 
foreign dive operators running trips in Bahamas contribute nothing to economy and a complete and unfair advantage against local outfits. This is according to Neil Watson, the president of the Bahamas Dive Association. Let's see, when did he say this? He said this on Sunday. Mr. Watson said U.S. dive companies are able to come in the Bahamas, run a full-service dive operation due to a loophole in a charter boat legislation passed in 1991. They said it's a very controversial issue. It has never been designed for that purpose. Legislation was designed to encourage yacht owners to cruise the Bahamas and base their vessels here. The BDA president said U.S. dive companies bring in groups of 10 to 20 divers and their vessels to Bahamas. They clear customs, integration, and then go out and dive, utilizing resources in Bahamas for a week. They literally float self-contained diving resorts. Their hotel, restaurant, bar, gift shop, and they operate their dive operations completely within local Bahamas businesses and contribute next to nothing. He said they do not pay duty on their vessels, equipment, and they purchase fuel at a cheaper rate in the U.S. He stated they have all foreign crews and do not employ one bohemian. They do not have to pay for work permits, and so has created a situation where dive businesses owned and operated bohemians are operating a financial disadvantage of businesses based in the U.S. The BDA has no control of the activities of the U.S. dive operators, Mr. Watson said. He noted that the facility off the facility, uh, you know that the facility, Fatality. Oh, fatality. Okay. Just couldn't quite read it right. Off Grand Bahamas last week's a prime example can happen with foreign dive operators do not follow proper protocols. So is this the Bahamas are lecturing the U.S. over who has better dive protocols? Yeah. Just seems like a, uh, uh, the whole article is a great yeah, well, I mean, let, let's take a look at the unfair advantage. Well, that's what his job is. He's you look at what he does. He's a president of the Bahamas Dive Association, and of course, he's going to try and have a protectionist policy to do it. Now, you know, I can see his point to a certain extent, but a law in 1991, I wouldn't necessarily call a loophole. <laughs> uh, yeah, they had to close that loophole. Yeah, they just didn't bribe the right government official if they didn't get it in by now. Yeah. So, but this is a trend all over. I mean, this doesn't just apply to Bahamas uh, liveaboards, and there and there's plenty of ways if they want to address this. Uh, many countries have charges that they charge people to dive on a reef. They can yeah, easily. I was, thinking, I was just thinking the same thing. You know, uh, charge to use the mooring. mooring. Yeah. Charge yeah. to uh, you know create a national park and charge a permit fee. Yeah, pres- preserve charge for every time you go on the reef, you know, $10 a day. And I think Mexico does it. I think a lot of your Asian countries have those sorts of fees for divers. So just a little bit of uh, sour milk there. He said uh, he's also concerned a tax advantage foreign operators have. They're required to pay $0.04, cents, 4% gross, and this is not verifiable. It's almost voluntary. Now, Bohemian Dive Operators and Dive Operation that's owned by Hotel is paying 18 to 20%. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm sure this is not the the last we've heard of this. And then hopefully, which will be one of the last somewhat dismal stories. God, how did I, how did I have so many? Scuba business is looking to stay afloat amid quarry drainage plans. The Carroll County and City of Westminster prepared to drain 30 feet of water from Hyde's quarry to test whether the water supply could support future development. Their oxygen their actions could unintentionally sink one of their local scuba diving business. The Maryland Department of Environment is in the process of reviewing the city and county's plan to test if Westminster Limestone Quarry turned freshwater lake could be used as a water supply area. 
in 2007, June of 2007, the county spent $1.2 million to purchase the 60-acre property with the purpose of using the water supply for future development. If the MDE approves permits for the work, Thomas Delvibis, Devilbis, Deputy Director of the County's Department of Land Use Planning Development, said it will take the city and county 30 days to lower the lake 30 feet, another 60 or 90 to test the lake's water's rechargeability. The plan is to start testing water recharge and quality beginning in August. Larry Brown, who's the owner of Undersea Outfitters, a local scuba supply and training business, said the project could mean the end of his diving days in Hyde's Quarry. They've been using the quarry as a training ground for divers since 2001 and have had a lease for the county to use the quarry since 2007 when they purchased it. Every weekend from April to November, Brown Recreational Scuba Divers and students swim through the underwater areas uh, which he has developed, including school bus, jeep, and airplane. He says he's also populated the quarry with fish, mows the grass, maintains a property, holds the key to the gate, and has been told that when the project begins and his lease expires, which is July 31st, he will no longer be able to bring divers to the quarry. He says, I will be here as long as I can keep going, but prospects aren't good if the county doesn't change their course. Staff from the county's Department of Land Use Planning Development briefed the Board of Commissioners about the project June 26. While the 26-minute briefing contained information about the project's history, a timeline for work goals, staff failed to mention the undersea outfitters lease for the property or that the scuba divers regularly lose freshwater lake for training. Brown was informed earlier in the year that he may not be able to use the quarry, and but he would not be given an answer until July 1st. Since then, he has asked all his divers to contact county commissioners about this, and they've responded. Three weeks after the staff's initial briefing on the project, Commissioner Haven Shoemaker, Republican from District 2, told the Times that in his email box was inundated with messages from scuba divers worried that the testing of Hyde's quarry will mean no place for them to dive. Shoemaker said, I didn't know there were so many scuba divers in Carroll County, but apparently we do. I'd like to get more information about the impact on them, what can be done to mitigate the damage the scuba diving world would eventually have some economic effect in our in the county. I'm curious at how that is all going to shake out. Shoemaker says he's going to use the issue and the agenda for the next week and the time. Shoemaker said he hopes that he and the board will get information on how water testing will affect the scuba diving community. Uh, the, the Outfitters, which was located in Finksburg and Skyksville, resides on John Street in Westminster. John Street. While the scuba diving shop is open May through Saturday, Monday through Saturday, divers are in Hyde's Quarry every week and occasionally on weekdays. Brown says he holds a $10,000 a year insurance policy in his diving operation at the quarry, which is a primary reason he believes he should be able to keep diving. I will not put any of my divers in harm's way whatsoever. Brown has proposed building a temporary structure to block off the area where the city will be pumping water, but is yet to hear back whether that will be considered. He's been diving since 1968, including 20 years he served in the U.S. Navy. So what it sounds like is that they're, they want to drain a bunch of water off and then see if it naturally fills on its own and how quick it is and what the water quality yeah, would be. So their thought was, well, we don't want anybody getting sucked into the, the intake, which I'd, I'd like to know how big of a, a pump they're using. So they just kind of inconvenience. You know, his, his money was handy for a while, but uh, you know, now that they're going to use it for something else, not so much. And I think I've lost Jim.
Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear uh, firsthand from somebody in the area if they've got any additional information. Yeah, I like Maryland. If it, you know, that was one of those East Coast places that I had to be. If you had to work down in the D.C. Virginia area, that's that's a nice spot. Other than you know, real estate's about four times the cost of what we got here. What's the next one? I think I lost my... Yeah, I was going to ask Mac. Have you, have you ever seen Lego pieces? Well, I mean, you've seen Lego pieces, but I have... You know, it's one of the... No, I haven't either. And we have seen quite a bit. I mean, I've seen uh, toy cars and and different things. Bikes. Uh, he said, for 17 years, Lego pieces have been washing up on the shores of Cornwall, England, mostly in nautical themes. <laughs> that, that just seems odd. Spear guns, pirate style, cutlass swords, flippers, pieces of scuba gear, and a rare and coveted octopus and dragon. They said there's no mystery where the popular kids' building parts originated. On February 5th, 1997, New York-bound container ship from Tokyo Express nearly overturned by a rogue wave, tossing 62 containers in the sea about 20 miles east of Land's End. Oh, what the frick? Now, why that? The whole page is blanked out. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. The video wanted to go full screen. Um... There's uh, Tracy Williams, who's a local writer, runs a Facebook page that catalogs the discoveries. Says the plastic pieces of eight still wash up daily. Just last week, a Lego scuba tank washed up in Perimprof in northern Cornwall. According to... Oh, come on. No. These websites. How do I freaking turn that off? Okay, yeah, this is this is weather.com who reported this. We need to find the original article because it'd, it'd be a heck of a lot better. But the the oldest scuba diver is he really the oldest? So oldest scuba diver says I'm ninety, or she says I'm ninety. Why should I be afraid? Photographers and tourists snapped photos of uh, Martha Lotz in the background of a mermaid show at the down the Denver downtown aquarium after finding out the scuba diver is 90 years old. Martha, on the other hand, didn't get all the hoopla. I don't understand it. I'm only going scuba diving. She would have it that she is an ordinary senior citizen, but she has done more than most. She became the oldest person to ever dive in the Denver downtown aquarium, getting instructions from A1 Scuba and Travel Aquatics Center. Everyone that lives lives here, she said, we don't come to die, we come to live. And this is what she's referring to as the uh, Claremont Park Retirement Community. She's living life to the fullest. She went skydiving in California birthday in March. As her family looked on, I insisted on going up on my birthday. The daredevil's also been in a hot air balloon. She's been ziplining. She wants to do everything while she still can. I never thought I'd live to be 90. You have a different outlook on life when you get to be that age. You don't have to wait till you're 90 to learn how to scuba dive. No, you don't. You can learn much, learn much earlier than that. But 
Hopefully, I'll still be diving at night. I hope so. I hope I'm, I'm around to be able to even consider diving. Bozeman scuba divers explore Yellowstone Lake. They were down to take a look at underneath the surface of Yellowstone Lake. We decided to come over here today and test out an area right here where none of us have ever dove before. We're able to see plenty of cool rock structures. Uh, Montana, the, the Montana, 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 the Montana natives are scuba diving in Yellowstone. Yeah, that's what I just said. Once in the water, they get, okay, yeah, the way they wrote this is like a, a play-by-play. Let's see, they said, it's mineralized structures from old hypothermal activity. There's a series of all these through the area. There are actually several of them in the park, but this is the one we can access from shore. The sounds are different. There's a tendency to be dark. We use lights to light things up. It's not unlike flying around another world, I guess. I love it. There's certainly peacefulness and serenity in the water. The lack of gravity, so to speak, pretty cool feeling. Definitely the bonus when you get to see fun stuff. Looks like they got conditions about like what we've got here. Yeah, and, yeah. And that one photo, kind of heavy tinted green. Yeah, yeah. Getting, getting deep, deep enough, deep enough to sort of the light. After, after it gets green, it goes gray. And then Mac's going to be upset, especially about missing this next one. I want to say, I wonder if he's ever found a bottle like this. I'm going to go out on a limb and bet he hasn't found one. World's oldest mineral ball. Ball. Goodness. Should have another drink. Uh, mineral. Are you getting all your birds wicks tonight? World's oldest bottle of mineral water is uncovered. 200-year-old corked seltzer flask found deep in the Baltic Sea. It is described as being in good condition and still corked. It has a name, Seltzer's, inscribed on the stoneware. Polish archaeologists found the 12-inch or 30-centimeter bottle in a shipwreck lying 12.2 lying, uh, meters or 40 feet below the water in Gdansk Bay close to Polish coast. It was produced between 1806 and 1830. The brown bottle is an extremely rare find, as most sealed flasks in the period contain either beer or wine. We have not opened the bottle. We're not sure if it contains what it contains and what the taste of the water, which is 200 years old. It's still a neat looking bottle. It is very it's more like a rock a bottle. Yeah, it, lo- it looks like a so, ceramic crock. Uh, nice and, uh, yeah, that'd be perfect. Apart from the bottle, the team managed to recover parts of ceramics, a small bowl, a few pieces of dinnerware. He said, well, it's likely that the bottle contains original seltzer's water. It doesn't rule the possibility it's filled with wine. Seltzer's a German luxury mineral water brand which gained popularity in Europe's wealthy during the 19th century. So saying even though seltzer made water, they also made wine. So who knows? Uh, okay, and then they go a little bit on uh, talking about seltzer discovered a thousand around 1,000 in northern slopes of the Tannis Mountain Range in Hesse, Germany. Many people claim a few sips of seltzer's water, also known as fluid treasure, can boost strength and health. The spring of this natural mineral water went dry in the beginning of the 19th century, and the characteristic stoneware bottle became rationed goods. In 1896, a group of enthusiasts from Seltzer organized a quest in order to find springs of the legendary water. After making numerous boreholes, a fountain of crystal clear water exploded from one of the wells below Langberg Castle. Archaeologists hope the bottle will help identify the shipwreck, which was found, which is currently only known as F-33-31. They suspect the ship may have been a cargo vessel used to transport goods such as along the Baltic coast. So far, due to preserved state and historic background, the stoneware bottles are most valuable find. Did you see the article that followed that one? Yeah, I didn't get that one earlier, but they're saying uh, man has caused outrage in September after finding the world's oldest message in a bottle and refusing to open it. 
Worn and battered but still sealed, the elusive note has finally reached a reader. 1,115 miles and one century later, the green teed artifact was spotted sitting in the shore, secluded Schooner's Cove in Tofino, Canada. Scrolling around the recently evacuated beach on Monday morning, Steve Turnber noticed the bottle lying in the middle of an open stretch of sand. Determined to preserve what stayed intact since September 29, 1906, he decided to leave the details of the message shrouded in mystery. All that could be read through the bottle, the cap which is rusted o- over, is the date that it was thrown into the sea, September 29, 1906, as signed by Earl Willard. It is. It lists Willard's address and states that he's a passenger steamer from San Francisco to Washington and that he threw the bottle in the sea 76 hours into the voyage. <laughs> it, it must have escaped from the uh, plastic island. Exactly, the, the island that was uh, sucking up everything, but it missed this bottle. Boy, Mac's going to be upset he's missing all the photos at the bottom of this. Unless you don't. Photos on the bottom? I'm looking at at the photos on the side. Yeah, (laughs) they're all over the place. And that is the. Oh, there's there's an interesting one. Okay. Yeah. Now I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the the dailymail.co.uk. And what we're talking about is they like to put those photos on there that make you think you're going to see something different than what you probably really will. Uh, let's see. I think that does it for the news. We do have some photos for the week. Uh, one of them. I like the photos here. You go ahead and look at those <laughs> other ones. I'm going to keep watching these. We have the Costa Concordia. If you've been following that, they, they finally raised the vessel completely and have started the towing operations. Uh, I haven't heard if they found that last body that they were looking for, but they've got a net around the vessel in case anything comes floating out. It'll be captured in a net. They've also got boats monitoring it for environmental impact. It was slowly lifted from the seafloor since Monday when salvagers began pumping air into 30 large metal boxes or sponsons attached to the hull. The air forced water out of the sponsons, lifting the cruise liner seven and a half meters off the undersea platform where it had been resting. A convoy of 14 vessels led by a tugboat Blizzard is uh, towing the coast of Concordia to a port near Genoa where it will be broken up for scrap, completing the biggest maritime salvage operation in history. Yeah, if you, if, if you look at the photo at the bottom, they show the Concordia when it was still nice and pristine, and then you look at it now. It's just amazing how quickly something can fall into disrepair. And then some other photos we have. We have a diver who, instead of photographing a normal light, has brought a desktop scanner modified underwater. He, he put the scanner in a waterproof case. He swam around in scuba gear scanning the ocean. I guess it's more of an art project than anything. He, uh, it looks like rippling images. Oh, that's actually the name of his website. Huh. Not exactly what I would use for underwater, but I guess. And then there's some photos of a Nazi submarine off the coast of Texas. And it's a little deep to dive. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful photograph by Robert Ballard. Yeah, they, they're not skimping on photography gear, are they? No, they aren't. Those are beautiful shots. Yeah, crystal clear. Photos. This thing is pristine. Yep. In salt water. Unbelievable. Yep. The U-166 was a U-boat that was sunk off the coast of Texas. It's within a few miles of one of the last vessels it sunk. The U-boat was built in 1940. It was a revision of the IX long-range submarine series. The sea version carried an additional 43 tons of fuel, which extended the area of influence right to the Gulf of Mexico. It was one of the only U-boats of any class ever sunk in that coast. It destroyed four ships that month, July 1942. The Carmen, a sailing vessel with a Dominican Republic flag. The Oneida, 
an American steam merchant, the Gertrude American fishing ship, and the Robert E. Lee American passenger steamer. That was sunk on July 30, 45 miles off the mouth of the Mississippi River. 25 people died and a total of 404 people aboard. Robert E. Lee lies only a few miles away from the U-166. After the the uh, U-boat sunk the Robert E. Lee and a U, uh, U.S. Navy patrol craft, PC-566 launched depth charges against it, sinking her and all her crew members of 52 sailors. Wow, look at that deck gun in that photo. Uh, yeah, if you go down a couple more photos, you can see the top of the conning tower. It's it's just, this thing is incredible. It's incredible shape. Well, it's also showing you, because I'm going to bet that there was a wood deck over that and that the teak or yeah. whatever wood's already gone away, but yeah. it looks like they've hardly touched any of the steel. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's, you know, 5,000 feet. There's actually some video on here, too, I'll have to watch later, but at 5,000 feet deep. Uh, it's probably very low in oxygen content, so yeah. things will be preserved a little longer. Now you, you, I mean, there's a few, you know, like it looks like sea anemones that have attached to it. Yeah. But not much else. No. Oh, what a beautiful wreck. Unfortunately, deeper than I can go. Now look, here, now look at the comment down here. The One of the first ones, it says, This place credence to an, an antidote. From a childhood friend in Mexico, he had a German last name and claimed his grandpa was part of a U-boat crew that decided to call it quit, scuttle the sub, and start a new life in Mexico rather than return to the defeated Germany and risk crossing the Atlantic. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Oh, and then there's another one down there in the comments. God, the comments are almost as interesting as the article. They have a chart showing the U-boats lost off the U.S. coast. Oh, yeah, that is, I've never seen anything like that before, but that's fantastic. Yeah, somebody took some time and posted it, and it looks like there's, what, maybe about 30 that they've got One, posted? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, about 21, 22. Yeah, and they, should, they have them color-coded by year from 1942 to 1945. Wow. Yeah, and then they're also asking about what they'd find if they opened the hatch, and somebody's saying, yeah. are there bodies in there? And somebody else is saying they're probably already gone. I mean, it would be a kind of a morbid question, but you kind of, yeah, that would kind of play into the, did they, mm-hmm. did they scuttle the boat or, or were they there? Yeah. And then we got some, I'm kind of doing some stretching this week on the cool scuba gear. The first one just happens to be underwater uh, in ways of trying to store energy. Some of these offshore wind platforms are talking about storing energy underwater in an air bubble. So if you imagine a big giant bladder, they just pump air down to it where it'll be stored and naturally compressed by the water and then as you need the energy you just draw the water up and run it through a they called it a hydrostatter on well, the hydrostatter is the company it was a hydro turbine i think to get the energy back uh, kind of a neat idea not a, a a new idea though it was originally thought of in the 1870s in the 1870s they were they had the idea but it wasn't underwater it was actually in the caves and pipe systems well, I was thinking of something today just happened there. As I was driving around the countryside, my mind was wandering. At a hydroelectric dam, you know, they, they back the water up and then use it to generate electricity. Yeah. What if they pumped water, let's say, a top of the Empire State Building, and then on every five floors put a hydroelectric turbine because the water's going to fall. Mm-hmm. And once it goes through one turbine, you've still got the same amount of energy and weight you in the next turbine, and the next turbine, and the next turbine, all the way down. 
Yeah, you could. I mean, that would be a valid way of, of storing energy, pumping it up. Just pump it up, and then, you know, every floor, you just grab it again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I, there's got to be something wrong with that logic. I don't know what it is, but there's got to be something wrong with that logic, or somebody would have done it. Well, I, 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 my, my guess, if I was going to just guess on it, is going to be that the, the real estate is so valuable that it's worth more in rent potential than it is to use as water storage. Well, for downtown, you know, New York, yeah. But what if you, you know, had a deep water well and were pumping your water up, you know, someplace in the middle of nowhere? Well, I mean, they've, they've, they've done that to some extent. If you look up, I think it was at Ludington. Yeah. That, where they've well, Ludington, yeah, they take it out of the lake and pump it at night when the rates are cheap and then use it to generate electricity in the daytime. Mm-hmm. You know, but what if they were able to pump it, you know, multiple stories up? You know, maybe it's the, I don't know, it's got to have, probably has something to do with the volume and the flow of the water. Well, you get the volume and the flow, but, and then you're duplicating all your infrastructure every five floors. Yeah. Where, you know, like at Ludington, you just only have to have one set of yeah. pumps where if you're going to do it up in the, if you're going to do it every five floors, that's, you know, ever, what, 110 floors of. Yeah, but I digress. But you know, it's it's fun to play around with those ideas. If you if people don't think of them, we're ne- we're never going to get any, anywhere with anything like that. I still like the idea of the uh, solar panel highways. Yeah, uh, I I've been following them just to kind of keep track, and there's not a whole lot of movement. Uh, the, part of their problem is that they've been a victim of their own success. You know, when you when you come up with these ideas of doing perks of T-shirts and little gifts and knickknacks. Mm-hmm. And your your wildest dream is a, a million, and you'd be happy with five hundred thousand, and then to do well over two million, they just have been bombarded. I think they're going to be working yeah. on the perks for the next three or four months. <laughs> uh, they're also trying to hire staff now. I was going to say subcontract that stuff out, get back to work. Yeah, well, they're actually trying to hire staff for you know the engineering and production, uh, which they they didn't think they're going to get that many people. They're hoping to to recruit some volunteers. But now with the amount of money they have, they can actually do some pretty serious engineering. And uh, if you go to their website, you can see the positions that are available. You do need to relocate to, I think they were in Iowa, which I'll wait till they, they, they do what they, they promised, which was plants in each state to produce the roads made there. So I'm, I, I would make a, you know, I would pitch our area in that you could basically one plant cover three states. We could do Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois manufacturing here we have a scuba diver they're calling it a social network but we have covered this one before this is the aquay aq aquary and they were listed in the website called the verge and they're talking about the equipment so they're getting closer to production uh, to kind of remind everybody they were having the the system that communicated underwater uh, you could communicate to a boat and also communicate with other vessels uh, not other vessels other divers it was a basically a small computer designed to handle pressures at 50 meters or 164 feet of depth. It was integrated with the air supply. So you see how much gas you have left in your tank. It also has all other sorts of sensors. Those include a magnetometer, accelerometer, external temperature sensing, depth meter, air pressure meter, internal pressure, internal networking. And it also communicates with any other nearby units through four ultrasonic hydrophones. It'll show you air status of up to 70 other divers within 328 feet. So the company will ship its first orders in July, and the units are expected to be running about $800. Can't wait. Yeah. 
sounds nice. We'd be happy to test them for them. Yeah, they, I've been communicating to, with them on uh, Twitter a few times, so maybe we can good. We can twist their arms and, and have them send us a, a demo unit or so. Yeah, we'd be happy to demo it and show it off every time we dive. Yeah, $800. You know, it's it really comes down to how durable is it and does it do what it says it's going to do because it could be worth it. Yeah. Well, that does it for scuba news and all the other stuff let's see it's been two weeks so have you gotten any diving in no i had that ear infection that slowed me down and then i was traveling for a couple weeks but now we're back well if you remember what i said i was going to go to summer camp uh, boy scout camp with my son and the last two summers i had taken my scuba gear with me and i said i'm not going to take it this year because i will not have a chance to dive and? And I had a chance to dive. <laughs> In fact, I almost drove home just to pick up the gear, but I was just too darn busy. But had the gear been there, I would have gotten some diving in. Mm. I took, I spent most, it was, a, it was a chilly week. We had one night 39 degrees. Ooh. Can you believe 39 degrees in July? That's Fahrenheit. That's not Celsius. Yeah. Where were you? Uh, Jones, Michigan. Jones? Wow. Jones. It got down to 39. Uh and I spent most of my time near the waterfront getting all sorts of water certification for Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. I got uh, safe swim defense, safety afloat, paddlecraft safety, which allows me to administer uh, rafting, float trips, canoe trips, kayak trips for Boy Scouts. Oh, I also good. got water rescue for Scouts. So about the only thing I didn't get was the BSA lifeguard. Which mm-hmm. they're just, it takes more than a week to get that one alone. So I got those certifications, and the Boy Scout camp there does offer scuba through a local dive shop. But this year they didn't have any takers on it. And one of the reasons that I think it is is that you're spending, it's about $285 per scout to go to summer camp. And part of summer camp is you're camping in the woods and hanging around your friends. If you take the scuba diving merit badge, mm-hmm. you get in a car after having breakfast, and then you drive to a building, and you're there through lunch, which you then have a bag lunch, and you get back to camp about 2 p.m., and you do that for four days of your five and a half, six days at camp. So I just don't think that, you know, you figure in the hour travel time each way and being away from camp that kids really want to do it. I mean, the cost is one thing, but then you're kind of missing out in the camp experience. In fact, my advice to many of the kids who want to take it was like, you know, just, we'll just find a place to, to do it otherwise. And, you know, don't waste your camp opportunity. So I'm trying to help the camp in setting up a dive program where if you're certified, there'd be things to do in the lake. And this lake is beautiful. It's a, a woods lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, visibility is pretty good. And my thought was, well, why not do the contain confined water and the open water right there at camp which they do the open water but they do all the the pool stuff in a pool so i talked to some of my paddy experts and they said ultimately it's up to the dive instructor but that the conditions if you could control pool pool light conditions which part of his visibility which i think it would pass uh, you would want to do diving first in the day so maybe you'd, you'd, you'd just have an hour earlier where nobody's been in the water yet uh, and then also put in platforms because they have a really nice controlled swim area. 
But I think if you put platforms, painted the platforms white, maybe put like a little red stripe to kind of simulate a dive flag or something, and you had mm-hmm. you had one platform at 15 feet and another one at 25 feet, you'd have a nice uh, scuba diving location. So yeah, uh, they're interested, and they also want to do a underwater survey of the lake. So I think we may be called out to go and do some dive work and survey work. Okay. There. So I, I already talked to one of our frequent dive crew members who has that Dr. Depth software. Yeah. So we just now, I got to call the aquatics director and get something lined up, but uh, could be a nice little lake. The, the downside is that the there is really no boat ramp to get in the water, and the power maximum power rating allowed on the lake is 15 horsepower. Well, my uh, inflatable would do that. Yeah. Well, and they, they do teach motorboating there, so... We do have access to a pontoon and a outboard, so it's just a matter okay. of relocating gear onto one of their boats. And yeah. well, pontoon and outboard, pontoon will make a great platform for survey. Yeah, and there were some days that I wish I had it because it was like glass. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, sailing for a couple of days wasn't the best, uh, but a really, a really nice lake. And I'll have to, I'll post some photos. I did a, a few of those who followed me saw a couple of the photos of the lake, but uh, just a just a beautiful lake. Perfect. It's like one I wish we had around here. Uh, there, there's no real runoff into the lake and visibility. Now, even with kids jumping and swimming in, you could stand in five foot water and see your toes. Wow. That is nice. Yeah. So, and the, you know, the, what they called poor visibility was 25, 30 feet. <laughs> yeah. So I was drooling. I was like, oh, and they're like, yeah, you should have brought your gear. So yeah, next year the gear's going. I'll do some some more stuff but yeah trying to trying to get some boy scouts in there diving we're, we're trying to add some additional we call them higher adventure type of activities for the camp you know mm-hmm. some zip lines some rock climbing which they currently do but it's off-site uh some cope courses climbing towers so just some things to add to the scouting experience for those who've been in scouting uh, sounds neat so looking forward to that that'll be ne- next summer i'll be i think we'll be going back there we also talked about going to another location but we haven't decided yet. Uh, well, with any luck, I'll be getting wet this weekend. Yeah, I saw that Kevin was talking about going this weekend. He's he was mentioned that Saturday going out to the either the Rockaway or uh, City of Green Bay. He mentioned I've never been on the City of Green Bay. Yeah, I was think, hopefully he was talking Sunday. Yeah, I think he said Saturday, but uh, you know, may, or maybe uh, both. Let I look, let me let me look here. Yeah. So you're thinking Sunday. I was thinking it was Saint. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm. Yeah, diving Rockway for sure on Sunday. Oh, Sunday. Okay. Good. Yeah, because I've got another activity on Saturday, but Sunday would be perfect for the Rockaway. Yeah, maybe uh, Sunday I'll I'll go and do some some diving. Yeah, I I need uh, to get, get a hold of him because looks like he only had two spots left, and I grabbed one. Oh, you're you're not taking your boat? No, I'm going out with his boat. Okay. But if his boat fills up, then maybe I'll take mine out. Yeah, or we can uh, always encourage some of the other divers. I I know Jim Kleeman. I need to get him diving again. Mm. He, he just I don't know when the last time it was he went. Like I think he's getting that point now where he just needs to be put thrown in the water, pitch him over the side, make him swim. Yeah. Let's see, and then Mac will will be looking forward to his story next week about any of his diving experiences. So I don't know whether he was looking for somebody's keys or glasses, or uh, there was a treasure ship that went down, but. We'll find that out. Do you, how's the preserve doing? Oh, uh, nothing new. Nothing new happening. Let's see. So you, 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 so, you haven't run out of uh, memberships, have you? 
No, we still have memberships available for those who would like to get their free air fills in the area. Yeah. 20, I think we're up to 28 free air fills wow, now. 28. And it only cost you $25. Yeah, it looks like the next dive center on the list who's donated is a Northern Michigan dive center out of Sheboygan. Ah. www.idivemi.com. Now, are they the ones who just got the new boat? Yes, they got a new boat this oh. past winter. They actually picked it up, I think, in in late fall. Yeah, about the time uh, when all the boats <laughs> sink in Lake Michigan yeah. is when they were out. Yeah, they, they fought some storms to get it up uh, back to Sheboygan, and then they spent all weekend or all winter refurbishing it, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it when we run up there around Labor Day. Yeah, so that's... I. So they're running two charter boats this year. They've got the old boat and the new boat. Also, they're running them both. So it just probably depends on how many they have as to which boat they take out? Uh, I guess so. So I want to say I saw something where they were even doing some maintenance on the old one. Uh, so let's see, what's their phone number? 231-597-8460. Boy, that's some nice photos on their dive site, too. Yeah, they've got a nice nice shop. They always took care of us when we've been up there, and they've been a supporter of the preserve for a number of years. And uh, good guys. It's a relatively new shop, and they, they're growing it every year, so... So they have the 42-foot steel clipper Blue Water, which is the one you talked about they got in November, can carry 20 to 25 divers per trip. So if you had a big group, you could book with them. Even, yeah, I'm sure they can share, uh, add you to somebody else as well. Nice. Looks like kayak rentals, even if you don't dive. And if you become a member of the Underwater Preserve, you get two free air fills from them. And then how much is the, the membership again? $25 for a basic membership. Supporting membership is 50, gold is 100, family is 60. Or if you just want to give some money, $1 donations are available as well. You can pay by MasterCard, Visa. I think you can take PayPal, don't you also, Jim? Yes, we do. PayPal or mail a check. <coughs> now, I, I don't know if I've talked to you since you guys did the last dive on the clay banks. Didn't you do one of those about three weeks ago, or did that get blown out? No, we didn't get out. Oh, okay. We did not get out. The last dive I did was uh, Rockaway, or not the Rockaway, the uh, Havana. Oh, okay. Havana dive. Yeah, that was the last time I've been in the water, so I'm I'm really jonesing to get wet this weekend. Cool. Let's see. You got anything else to plug? Hole in my wetsuit, or dry <laughs> suit, but that's about it. Got to find it. I'm chasing them down and staying drier as I chase them down, so... Okay, well, you can always keep track of us on www.scubaobsessed.com. You can see what the Mud Club Muddies are up to at mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. Also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed, and on Twitter at scubaobsessed. Also on Google Plus and a bunch of other links which you get from the Scuba Obsessed website. And we're going to try and get the chat room back up and going or some sort of live stream. Uh, we miss having the the live activities going on. Yeah. Chat room was so much fun. Yeah, missed having that, but I think with this new internet bandwidth, we should be able to accommodate it. So we'll, st so should we, should we plan to try a chat room next week? We can shoot for it. So that's what we'll do is uh, watch the, uh, you can follow us on talk shoe, which is what we're currently using, or I may use a different service. Well, I'm still doing some testing, but at the very minimum, we'll try and do a talk shoe chat room. So follow us there. We also love those five-star reviews. Let me, before we go, let's see if we had any more 
reviews since last time. This makes her really exciting as I go and look on the website. No, nothing, nothing new. So if you'd love to, if you'd love to, we'd love to have you leave us a five-star review. Helps us get new listeners. Well, I think I've done about as much stalling as possible. I think we're to the that time of the show, the bad scuba joke. Now, there's a few of them. A couple of them I can't quite do, so I maybe we'll have to have an alternate version mm. that we send out. They're just uh, some are beyond politically correct, incorrect, and are just plain wrong. <laughs> uh, could we we could share them in the chat room? I guess. Yeah, at some point. So maybe we'll we'll, we'll share that one in the chat room. Uh, let's see. Okay, so here we go. You ready? Bob went on a scuba diving trip with his wife, kids, and mother-in-law. On Sunday morning after exploring a wreck, the wife surfaced to find her mother gone. Rushing to her husband, she insisted that both of them try to find her mother. Bob jumped into the boat, took a swig of whiskey, and started to look for her. Watching for her bubbles not far from the wreck, they came upon a chilling sight. The mother-in-law was backed up to a rock with enormous great white facing her. What are we going to do, cried the wife. Nothing, said Bob. The shark got himself into this mess and get himself out. <laughs> ah, yeah. Sounds like there was a little bit of a mismatch there. Uh, could be. Yeah. So, on that note, go out there and get wet. Stay safe. And remember, there were no fatilities. Fat, fat, fat teeth. Fate, 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 oh, fatalities in tonight's show. 